0: Welcome to the Hughes-Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practice Group's podcast, All Things Investigations. The Hughes-Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practices Group represents many of the premier companies around the world, providing advice on issues spanning the full anti-corruption and compliance spectrum. In this podcast, host Tom Fox and members of the Hughes-Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Practice Group will highlight some of the key legal issues involved in white collar and other investigations, both domestically and internationally. We will tackle topical issues involved in investigations, as well as explore how companies can prevent and detect issues that arise in conducting investigations on a worldwide basis. Today, Brent Carlson from BRG joins Mike Huneky from Hughes, Hubbard and & Reed, and Tom Fox to take a deep dive into directors' liability under the new sanctions and trade controls regimes. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back with another episode of All Things Investigations. We're in for a treat today because we have double trouble. Mike Huneky and I are joined by Brent Carlson. We're going to talk about one of the most interesting developments in corporate governance and uh, I think the chief compliance world over the past 18 months or so. And that is the start with the Delaware Court of Chantry decision in McDonald's. But before we get there, I think our listeners know you, Mike. So, Brent, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself to our audience.
1: Sure. You bet. Thanks, Tom. And much appreciated for the opportunity to be here uh, and talk a bit today. Basically at the end of the day, I help companies, boards and counsel with fraud, compliance and corruption type issues. So at the end of the day, I'm a fraud expert, not to help clients perpetrate, but to help them investigate, litigate and remediate, and most importantly, prevent. And it started my career doing corporate and business development, in China a long, long time ago. And I ended up being a troubleshooter. and It's turned into a lifelong vocation. Now
0: that you say that, I think our paths crossed a long time ago somewhere. You seem very familiar. But we're here really to talk about an article you guys wrote And First of all, I have to start with the title because it's just great. Quote, boards of directors loving it after McDonald's, a fresh look at directors' duty of oversight in the era of sanctions and export control, corporate enforcement, end quote. So I'm gonna start with what led you guys to collaborate to write this article.
2: Tom, this is really the outgrowth of an initial article that Brent wrote in August of 2023, where he talked about how companies reliance on potential loopholes in US export controls was actually exposing them to significant liability. Not only did I think Brent was right on when I read his article, but I really appreciated the style, tone, need I say flair of the article and its practical advice. One of the things that had been bothering me about what I thought was coming in terms of sanctions and export controls enforcement was that it reminded me a lot of what all three of us have seen in the anti-corruption space. There are a lot of good people, meaning people, who because their companies didn't get with the program found themselves on the front lines or even the firing lines of both internal investigations and external investigations. There are a lot of good people who found themselves in what later were revealed or understood to be paper compliance programs or programs that weren't risk-based who ended up being as perceived gatekeepers, some of the primary witnesses for the FBI interviews, SFO interviews, other regulators' interviews. I thought that was very unfair, and I thought that it was important to do what we could to warn compliance teams, compliance professionals and companies about what we saw coming. After Brent wrote his first blog post, I reached out to him, introduced myself, and we began a a really great collaboration trying to cover the waterfront of sanctions and export controls risks and how people might not be appreciating how those are playing out. For example, we have a piece on risk assessments. How do you conduct risk assessments? We have a piece on internal investigations. We have a piece on penalties for export controls violations and how those compare to the FCPA of before and now maybe today in the future. We have a piece on corporate enforcement policy across the whole DOJ and how the application of those policies to the National Security Division is very significant in terms of what corporations should expect and sanctions and export controls enforcement. And that led naturally to a next step of talking about boards of directors. What were their duties, particularly as the world was changing around them?
1: And one thing, if I may add about the changing world is uh, when we've been talking with uh, board directors, One of the top issues is geopolitics. We live in a a world that's very changed from where it was just a few years ago, and it's a top priority concern. And now the questions are, where does the rubber meet the road in terms of geopolitics hitting a company's operations? And when the US Department of Justice comes out and says that export controls and sanctions are the new FCPA, folks like us makes us stand up and pay attention, and it's starting to get the attention in the boards and companies as well.
0: The One of the themes I took away from the article, which I greatly appreciated, is I think Mike and I have had the opportunity to visit about what the DOJ has said about perhaps increasing not perhaps, but increase enforcement in the era of sanctions and export control. We haven't really focused on internally, what does that mean for a chief compliance officer? What does that mean for a director of export control? What does that mean for a board of directors? And that's where the overlay of McDonald's uh, I thought was uh, particularly insightful for your article. So could one of you all remind our audience what the McDonald's case was and why it's so significant for both directors and corporate officers?
2: Sure, Tom, and for people who really want to geek out, you and my partner, Ben Britz, did an excellent overview of the initial decision in this line of cases back I think in episode 23 of the All Things Investigations podcast network. The basic idea is that shareholders of McDonald's sued and trying to stand in the shoes of the corporation, former executives and members of the board, because of very egregious alleged violations of McDonald's HR policies by those executives. They sued the executives for violating their duties to the company and they sued the members of the board for failing in their duties to respond to reports of these allegations coming to their attention. Tom, the initial decision that you and Ben Britz discussed earlier was the one in which the Chancery Court held that the plaintiffs had actually pleaded allegations against the executives, so to survive the motion to dismiss made by a former chief people officer Later, what happened is that the same court held that, by contrast as to the directors, plaintiffs had not met their burden of pleading and it dismissed the allegations against the directors for failure to state a claim. That decision lays out a roadmap that's very important for directors to follow and and think about in terms, not just of HR complaints, but also sanctions and export controls. And we'll talk about that later in the pod. Ultimately, as, as Ben, I think, presciently predicted in the earlier pod, the court dismissed the whole litigation because for shareholders to sue in the shoes of a company, they have to either make a demand that the company bring the lawsuit itself or failing that, show that making such a demand would have been futile. And the court dismissed the litigation because it held that they had not met the standard of making that, that claim in court. So
0: did it change Caremark or just expand Caremark, or perhaps something
2: else? So, Tom, it's just further pulling on the Caremark thread, so to speak. It, It didn't overrule Caremark. Many of its holdings, if not frankly all of them, really just reiterated other holdings, either by the Court of Chancery or even the Delaware Supreme Court, about what Caremark meant. So, The main summary, though, that was very clear in the McDonald's decisions is that there is a duty of oversight. It comes from the duty of loyalty, which has important implications for directors liability. And there's two components to it. The first is that directors need to ensure that management have put in place information systems and controls so that directors and management can make informed judgments about whether their company is actually compliant with the law. The second is that they need to respond effectively to red flags if and when they arise, and they need to have a system for doing so. None of this was new in the McDonald's decision, but the decision is very clear in summarizing those duties and where they come from.
0: Like you spoke about the egregious facts, I'm a recovering trial lawyer, and we used to often say that bad facts make bad law. I don't know if this is bad law, but I can not agree with you. The facts were egregious in this case, And that may have colored the decision by the court of chancery. Nevertheless, it is where we find ourselves today. And with the increase in sanctions and export control, what do both boards of directors and corporate officers, whether that be a chief compliance officer, whether it be a a director of export control, if he's considered an officer or not, or even a CEO, Need to start thinking about to fulfill their obligations under Caremark as expanded by McDonald's. I'll
2: turn this one over to Brent. Oh,
1: okay. okay. Basically, uh, export controls and sanctions have, for for a long time since the end of the Cold War in the nineteen nineties, took a relatively back seat in the corporate compliance world. That has now changed completely. Now, it changed. You started to see the change with uh, the crackdown on financial sanctions and anti-terrorist financing. And geopolitics, that's an indication that geopolitics moves the whole ocean. Now we're into export controls and economic sanctions. And so really what that is, is understanding how that world is changing. And one of the biggest things you can see that is changing is the US Department of Justice National Security Division ramping up resources and stepping in to support other regulatory agencies. So what that means is that when we're looking at these compliance programs, boards, compliance officers need to be looking at it from a dynamic perspective and looking at these issues from how the DOJ is going to look at the compliance program and evaluate it, specifically the, the DOJ's guidance in terms of its evaluation of corporate compliance programs. And understanding how those apply—it's a different world. It's applying more of a white-collar mindset to, in the past, what may have been more administrative and um, in execution.
2: Yeah, Tom. It's at the end of the day, it's a reasonableness standard. The obligation is that they adopt and implement a reasonable system of monitoring and reporting, and. That they have to do that related to what they view to be the corporation's central compliance risk. And so for exactly the reasons Brent was laying out, what might've been your central compliance risk 30 years ago might be a lot different today. And what might've been something you viewed even five years ago as an area of law, highly technical, very bureaucratic, strict liability regime where the intent and all this stuff didn't really matter as much, And the fines were a lot lower. Now you're looking at an FCPA like world coming into view in that space. And that should prompt boards and management to reevaluate how they're assessing their exposure to those risks.
0: Under the prior administration, I used to joke with my export control friends in the morning, what new regs are out this morning and when will the new ones be out this afternoon? Uh, Because things change so quickly. I think under the current administration, they perhaps don't change as quickly, but as you correctly noted, Mike, now we're starting to see enforcement actions around this. How should, my sense is that companies have a monitoring system and, and you may disagree with that, but I see the problem with getting the information to the decision makers. Now, both boards of directors and officers in the form of what the court might call a red flag. Is that where you see the problem now, or do you think it's actually still with a a reasonable monitoring system in the area of sanctions and export control?
2: Tom, I think that when people think of a monitoring system and export control speak, they're thinking of what's tracking the millions of widgets that are going from one place to another. What they should be thinking about, and many are ahead of the curve already on this, is what is the DOJ telling me and whether or not I agree with them Could I defend my current program in light of what they're telling me? There have been several very well publicized compliance notes issued, not just by the DOJ, but co-signed, if you will, by the Departments of Justice, Commerce, State, the Treasury, Homeland Security. Very clearly listing what people familiar with OECD parlance would say are the topologies of evasion schemes. And that's what Brent and I are concerned needs to get to boards of directors, needs to get to management. It's not just a case of reading a New York Times or a Wall Street Journal headline and being like, oh, there's a new enforcement environment. Let me forward this on to my colleagues and they'll take care of it. It's a fundamental change in mindset that you need to have. You could spend weeks, years, you know, looking into item classifications and export classification numbers, you're gonna get lost in the weeds. The risks that are gonna lead to massive DOJ enforcement actions are bigger picture risks. Is my customer really a customer? Is the person that I'm saying is the end user really plausibly an end user? And if they're a general trading company with a headquarters in a free zone in Dubai, they're not the end user, they're just not. And so those are the types of things that we anticipate when you do start to see DOJ enforcement actions against U.S. companies. It's going to be those types of things that they missed.
1: And just to add to that, one of the things that I think is a, somewhat of a misunderstanding <laughs> at, uh, at the board or the upper management level is that we have a screening program in place and isn't that picking it up? The DOJ has come out and said that traditional screening against the companies or entities that are on these official lists is not enough. It needs to, that world moves so fast with new shell companies set up that companies need to take a broader and more qualitative view. And when they're doing their due diligence on their, uh, know their customer and know their business partner. So, that old model of you just look on the list and, and you don't see them. Okay, fine. That's gone. And that was part of the, the, the genesis behind that original article, um, that I wrote earlier that Mike had mentioned, when loopholes create liability pitfalls.
2: Yeah, Tom, I think on an earlier pod with you, I said KYC is dead. And that's exactly what I mean by, the, by that, is that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. You actually still have to do it. You still have to look there. But we're dealing today in terms of Russia and Iran and China with highly sophisticated actors who do not share our values, some of whom are the targets of our controls or sanctions in different aspects or another, others are just pass-throughs to get around them. And so it's not beyond the pale for them to have anticipated what World Check, what Dow Jones, what Hoover sends back when people put names into a database, right? And you have to be thinking beyond that. You have to be triaging risk based on end users, locations, and you can look at the DOJ, Treasury, State, Commerce Guidance, and they'll tell you what types of products, what types of items present higher risk because of the need that Russia or Iran have, for example, for their UAV programs.
0: Let me go in a little bit different direction. We saw, I would characterize a fairly major expansion of Caremark, starting with the Marchand case, which was Bluebell ice cream. Although, once again, we had bad facts because we had a food company who didn't have food safety as a part of their board to remit. But then we went to Boeing, and once again, we had very bad facts. We had two major airline crashes of a 737 MAX, and the Court of tran- Chancery criticized the board for not being more proactive in questioning management when management reported on these. And it really seemed to me that they were moving to an area where they were directing boards to take action that I thought was getting close to the business judgment rule. And I use that as a way to introduce the business judgment rule with McDonald's, with the duty of oversight, both at the board level and at the executive level, because the business judgment rule says you can make a mistake if it's based on reasonable business judgment. I've even gone so far as to say, you can be negligent. Once again, it's based on reasonable business judgment. How, and I can contrast that with export control. It's pretty much strict liability. I don't see a lot of mistakes leading to non-enforcement actions. Am I overly concerned, not concerned enough, all of the above, none of the above, or how do you guys assess the Delaware? business judgment rule as opposed to what DOJ or OFAC might bring in an enforcement action?
2: Tom, there's a lot of different angles of analysis, all crisscrossing here. The business judgment rule applies to instances where there's the duty of care is what's being put into question. And in the duty of care space, if something is subject to that prism of director obligations, People can be negligent. Even gross negligence is sometimes protected under the business judgment rule as long as someone was acting with some minimum level of care in performing their duties. What's interesting about the duty of oversight, particularly as it's described in McDonald's, but really even before that, is it comes not from the duty of care, but from the duty of loyalty. And and the one Sense that makes it even harder for plaintiffs to prove because they have to prove bad faith. They have to prove that someone's actually, as the court said, acting with a conscious disregard or deliberately, consciously not doing what they're supposed to be doing. But on the other hand, if they do reach that higher standard, there's no business judgment rule protecting people on the other side of that. And not only is there no business judgment rule, but as we've pointed out in the blog post, that exculpatory provisions don't cover that, and so directors could be sitting there if that threshold's met, and it's a very high standard, it's still a high standard, but if that threshold is met, directors would be very unprotected from damages claims by plaintiffs.
1: And the McDonald's case also provides a roadmap to help these boards in protecting themselves against the plaintiff's side from meeting that standard. And what that means is that it's, it's pretty clear, and we put that in this article as well, where it's up ob- obtain updated reports from management to stay on top of the issue to make sure that uh, there's any course corrections that need to be made. Make sure that the compliance program is assessing risks as they are dynamically impacting the company and the compliance program is addressing those. Bring in external advisors, even at the board level, to talk about the changing world of risks and how they're happening and how, how to address those and with, with company management to help make a, a more effective compliance approach. And then take action. If there has to be whatever action that needs to be, again, course corrected within the company to avoid, to avoid uh, any trouble, it's the title of another one of our articles. We call it An Ounce of Prevention is Worth a Pound of cure," And that is the old adage that rings true to today.
2: Yeah. And Tom, to your question, how concerned should you be? I don't think terribly concerned because even in the mcdonald's decision the vice chancellor notes that the obligation of a fiduciary is not to be correct at the end of the day not to be right but have acted in that manner to as he says be cautiously skeptical of what management's telling them for us the key takeaways for mcdonald's apply to the context of export controls and sanctions is it might not be enough for boards just to forward news articles to management and assume it's being taken care of. They need to ask the question, but also get an answer. Under the court of chancery's opinion, the courts are almost agnostic as to what the answer is, as long as the board presses on the answer, maybe stress tests it a little bit, but they don't get into trying to make the decision for the board how to evaluate the answer. The McDonald's decision even, suggests that it thought that the initial internal investigation done by McDonald's could have been a little more thorough, but says it's not for it to judge. And in that particular question, how much to investigate, the court held, that's a duty of care question. And it did defer to the board under the business judgment rule there. You're certainly right to have the question. I think you don't need to be concerned, but boards do need to be thoughtful about which duty is applying to which actions they're taking.
0: in in listening to this, uh, gents, it also strikes me that this is just good corporate governance. Certainly, there's a legal obligation and the Department of Justice, HOFAC, and other federal agencies have articulated that. The Delaware courts have now given uh, their thoughts around um, obligations under Delaware law. But uh, we've recently had companies uh, that announced or was discovered they're still doing business in Russia. And the reputational damage could be as great Uh, if, uh, as if they were fined or penalized. So would it be fair to say these steps you are suggesting are really just good governance steps that you should utilize when your risks change? And they have changed dramatically in the area of sanctions and export control over the past certainly five
1: years. Absolutely. And one thing, a point that you raised earlier, Tom, about Regulations changing rapidly and they they can seem very complex. When that's going on, when you're in a period of rapid change and it seems like there's increasing complexity, get back to the basics. Always go back to the basics. Go to those fundamental principles and that'll carry you through the end.
2: Yeah, and Tom, nothing would destroy share price and shareholder value like having the U.S. military deconstruct the drones like the ones that tragically killed American servicemen a few days ago and finding your company's components in it. Whatever, however ubiquitous the product, however not your fault it was that somebody smuggled it, stole it, obviously didn't tell you the truth, or even your third or fourth or fifth or sixth-tier suppliers' customers, the truth, it's still going to be horrible. And we've seen CNN... Bloomberg, Wall Street Journal, jumping on these stories as soon as there is any allegation that U.S. components, parts, tools are really helping Russians or Iranians to hurt people.
1: And, and, so, and Iranian-backed militia in the Middle East that are now shooting it. In fact, it was just a couple of weeks ago, two Navy SEALs died interdicting a shipment from Iran to Yemen. And when that happens, that becomes a priority of, of the U.S. government across the board
2: yeah I think the story that ran right after that Brent, you and I noticed was that the lead picture on The Wall Street Journal was a deconstructed missile that they had been found that they had found in that shipment.
1: And that's an example of dynamic changing risks. big time.
2: Gentlemen, unfortunately, we are near
0: the end of our time for this episode. You have talked about multiple articles in this podcast, and we're going to link to all of those in the show notes. But before we leave, if our listeners wanted to get in touch with you after they hear this or really, follow-up or any other reason, what would be the best way to do, whether it's LinkedIn or some other format? Brent, as the guest, I'm going to start
1: with you. Yeah, go ahead. You can you can find uh, us on LinkedIn, uh, and then that'll get you to where you need to go.
2: Mike? Yeah, LinkedIn for me. And maybe, Tom, one quick concluding thought would surprise Brent to me a lot is that I think the DOJ and the other agencies have gone out of their way to be very loud very clear about what their expectations are there's still some people in the trade press that are curious or skeptical whether enforcement will follow i think it's a really dangerous view to take and it's already here we've seen multiple billion dollar enforcement actions in the last year people have been indicted arrested there have been sting operations there was one guy just a few days ago arrested after being on the run for 20 years so All of the white collar tools that DOJ brought to bear eventually in the FCPA space, they're here and they're being used now. That said, you can find me also on LinkedIn and all of our blog posts in the show notes, we highly recommend. They're meant to be short, practical, pragmatic, and really help compliance people to avoid these pitfalls that we're afraid some may be walking into.
0: Gentlemen, thanks again. I hope we can continue this conversation. Appreciate it. This is Tom Fox again. We've linked to the article that was jointly written by Mike Hunicky and Brent Carlson, as well as several other blog posts and articles that they've written on these and similar topics. So check out the list of articles in the show notes. I know you'll find them useful. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the award-winning All Things Investigations. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review wherever great podcasts are listened to. All Things
2: Investigation is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.